Hello there, welcome to another YouTube video. I'm currently uh, sitting in my room on my uh, new old couch. Uh, it's new because I just got it, but it's very old. Got it for 350 bucks online and it looked like a total mess, but I cleaned it up and I'm very happy with it. So you'll probably see a lot more of it um, as I uh, do these videos. So today what I wanted to do is take up uh, an idea that actually I mentioned on the Fundamentalist podcast when I was talking about the idea of the unconscious. And I mentioned uh, Mobius Strip. And uh, I want to kind of unpack what a Mobius Strip is and how that can help us understand the nature of reality. <laughs> so uh, this is a you know relatively heavy one. Um, get yourself a drink, settle down, and we'll see how we go. Hopefully I can keep your interest uh, for the whole 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is. We're going to look at uh, materialism. We're going to touch on a two-world cosmology, what that means. Uh, we're going to look at um, we're going to look at the nature of the subject, the nature of the holy, and end up making this practical uh, by looking at how this might help us understand our obsessions and maybe even how to navigate our obsessions in a way that's healthier for us. So I'm basically saying that so that you watch to the end. I suppose you could fast forward to the end as well, but I'm going like there is a payoff hopefully uh, to your personal life if you stick through all the, the, the boring theory. Um, so first of all, uh, I want to start with the idea of a two-world cosmology. And by two-world cosmology, I mean the idea that the universe is made up of two dimensions. So uh, just to use this piece of paper as an example, this piece of paper has two sides. And uh, in a two-world cosmology, there is a notion that uh, there is kind of, uh, it, it plays out in a number of ways. And I'll talk about philosophy for a start. In Descartes, the idea that there is a mind and there is a body. So there is a kind of a intellectual dimension to human beings and there is a, a biological, bodily, physical dimension to beings. Um, in Immanuel Kant, there is the idea of the phenomenal world, which is the world we know. And there's the noumenal dimension, which is what we don't know, the thing in itself. It's like we are recording machines and we are recording reality, but the recording uh, reflects the type of machine that we are, the type of senses that we have. And so we can never experience the world as it is outside of our experience of it. Uh, and that's the noumenal. So there's the phenomenal and the noumenal. And in theology uh, or religion, you have uh, the sacred and the secular, or you have the mundane and you have the holy. Uh, you have the kind of the plane of kind of reality, and then you have the realm of the gods or God. And, and in each of those two world cosmologies, of course, you have a certain dilemma is that how do the two worlds interact? So in Descartes, you have, you know, he, he theorizes the idea of a penal gland, a, a gland that is in the mind or in the brain that connects uh, mind with matter. Uh, for, for Kant, he talks about the sublime. The sublime is the experience that you have that the world is 
not everything. When you're walking maybe uh, through a forest and you see a great waterfall and you're, you're overtaken by the beauty of the waterfall and the majestic uh, scale of the forest. But it's not just the waterfall and the forest. It's like they hint at a, a world that you cannot see. So it's greatness that you can kind of conceive hints at uh, an echo of what you cannot see. And that's kind of the sublime. So the sublime is this moment, this place, these places in our lives where we feel that the two dimensions are in some way overlapping, uh, kind of negatively because they can never meet, but they they collide in some way. And then, you know, in, in religious terms, you would call this the, uh, the paradox. Someone like uh, Jean-Luc Marion would say the paradox is where the infinite and the finite collide and then the paradox is basically the result of these two incommensurable worlds briefly meeting they create weird phenomenon which we call paradox uh, or you know in, in New Age mysticism it would be called a thin place you know these these thin places somewhere where the two worlds are kind of like join in some sort of way so there you go. So that you know, that's very simple. We all know about the two-world uh, cosmology. Well, one more example, by the way, in, in psychology would be the conscious and the unconscious. Uh, the conscious, the subject that knows, that navigates the world, that reasons, and then this dimension that inside ourselves that we don't know, that causes us to act in ways that uh, surprise us. Uh, we rationalize the behavior, but we act in ways that are not themselves rational. And uh, in psychoanalysis then, uh, you know, this is called a para parapraxis, is where these two worlds meet, the conscious and the unconscious. A parapraxis comes from, you know, the word praxis means action, and para means um, kind of outside. So paramilitary means like it's a military organization, but outside the military. Um, uh, so a parapraxis is a type of action that is outside normal actions. So the parapraxis is dreams, slips of the tongue, mistakes that we make. And that, that's where the, the uh, conscious and the unconscious meet. Okay, so then uh, the other worldview that we all kind of know is the critique of this which is the idea that no, this two-world kind of two-tiered universe is a, is a relic of superstition and that there is no evidence for it. There is no way that we could ever uh, make that claim. So you see this at its most extreme, maybe in, in positivism. You see it in kind of Nietzsche's more positivistic work where, uh, in Human All Too Human, where he says that we are thinking within our brains. And so, of course, we know there are limits and what we do then is we can imagine that those limits are something positive so we take a negative like which is a lack of knowledge and we make it into a positive um, but that really this this idea of the noumenal or this idea of the unconscious or the idea of the holy um, is is uh, completely nonsensical nonsensical you know, somebody might make a weak claim and say it's only nonsensical to us. I mean, there might be a noumenal realm, but but we, by definition, could never conceptualize it or even conceptualize that there's something we can't conceptualize. Or there would be a strong version of it which would say that the um, 
it's just the concept is incoherent. And so there, there are all manners of critique. So somebody, a psychologist, might say, well, there's no evidence for the unconscious, right? There's no evidence in brain science and in the brain scans that we do. Can't find any domain that we could call the unconscious. It doesn't exist. Uh, or somebody, a crude materialist in religious terms, to say the holy, um, again, is that it is just the positivization of something we don't understand, something we can't know. Um, uh, in, in philosophy, be the idea that the noumenal realm again or that the mind is an epiphenomenon of materiality it's not a substantial thing it is merely a type of uh, illusion um, that results from matter the problem is that both sides I mean Kant would say this create antinomies which basically means that when you go all the way with both of these positions you you come up against all sorts of problems. So in a two-tier universe, uh, that's that's easy enough to see the, the problems. Um, uh, you know, and we just take Nietzsche's example in all, human all too human. It's like, we think from within our bodies and with, with our biological brains, and all we can know is what we know and what we conceptualize in this brain. So the idea that we can somehow step outside of ourselves and take a God's eye view and kind of make some sort of claim to some other dimension, it's just beyond our, our any possibility um, irrationally to do. Uh, or, um, you know, then on the other side, you take kind of this kind of crude materialism and you can say, well, Okay, for a number of things, um, you have to explain the uh, emergence of mind and subjectivity, um, which uh, you know is very very difficult to do within this very simplistic materialist worldview. But also, um, you have to make how do you adequately reflect on the work of great philosophers and poets and mystics who have talked about. The, what Rudolf Otto and the idea of the holy calls the mysterium tremendum. This, this very real experience that humans have that you can find in, it's ubiquitous across uh, every continent, this notion of the mystical, that's not just you know, easy to write off in terms of say a mental health issue uh, because you're talking about people like Rudolf Otto who um, have written incredibly intelligently and perceptively about this experience. So how do you kind of do justice to that? Um, or do you just kind of like, kind of ignore it? Whenever you read Augustine, uh, you know, how, how do you make sense of the reality that is being expressed there? Now, this then brings me to the Mobius strip. So the Mobius strip, is you take a piece of paper like this and I'm not going to do it in, on the camera because I'll probably mess up. I made one earlier. Uh, so here is my <laughs> Mobius strip that I made earlier. Uh, so basically all it is is a twist in the paper and then you tape the two ends together and you create this interesting structure that has two sides. So in any discrete place on the Mobius strip there are two sides. But the structure as a whole only has one side. If you take your finger and you go around the Mobius strip, 
what happens is without taking your finger off the strip, you, you traverse the entire surface and come back to the beginning. So at any discrete point, there are two sides, but the structure as a whole only has one side. Now, the, the theorist Lacan, who I'm indebted to for these kinds of insights, who wrote incredibly deeply and perceptively and obliquely about these, these structures, these mathematical structures, but um, he used the Mobius strip uh, to, to unpack the meaning of the unconscious. But I'm just going to kind of do a, a more basic introductory uh, reflection on the Mobius strip. Right? Um, the Mobius strip allows for an understanding of reality as twisted. So on one side you have crude materialism, which is kind of like reductionistic and one-dimensional. And then at the other side you have a two-tier cosmology, which is this superstitious notion. The Mobius strip allows you to have both. <laughs> um, where our experience of life at any point is an experience of two sides, an experience of mind and body, of the sacred and the secular, of the conscious and the unconscious. But that experience um, is an effect of a twisting in reality itself. Uh, so in this way, think about it like this, in relation to the holy, the holy is a term, a technical term, that describes the twist in reality, that creates the experience of a fundamentally other reality, that drives us, that um, inspires us, that we, uh, in good and bad ways, pursue, right? So this twist in reality creates this sense of, of another world that makes this world not everything that makes us feel that we can actually radically transform the world, recreate it. So this other dimension exists for us, right? Because of the twist in reality. Again, in terms of the unconscious, the unconscious is not a thing that is on the other side of consciousness. The unconscious is a twist in our, in our, in our consciousness that creates the sense that there is something on the other side. So in a way, the unconscious is what's on the other side and the twist that creates it. It's both the thing that we can't grasp within us and the distortion that prevents us from grasping it. So, uh, you know, in work of Shizek, Shizek will often use that very terminology where he'll say, you know, the, the thing that we want, the thing that drives us that we think will kind of fix us is both on the other side of the mundane world and the distortion, the, the obstacle that gets in the way of us having it. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm going to use this. Um, I have, uh, uh, this is um, Sa uh, Goliath. This is Goliath and this is Samson. And these are the cranes uh, that uh, dominate the skyline of Belfast. They're the uh, shipbuilding cranes that were, at one stage, I think the biggest in the world. And they're still absolutely huge. And it's where the Titanic was built. Um, so I'll take uh, Samson here. Um, if I desire Samson, right, whatever, this can be any, this can be a person, this can be a job, this can be a religion, this can be anything. It can be stamp collecting, right? I want this, I desire it. Now I don't just desire it like a cup of coffee. I desire it like I want to give anything 
to this. It's like uh, uh, the Mission Impossible movie. Um, which one was it? I think it was the second one or the third one. But it was the, the movie where they're all chasing the rabbit's foot. If you remember, um, it's, it's, what happens is um, some baddies kind of want this thing. We don't know what it is, but they really want it. And so the Impossible Missions Force, they are trying to get it first. And the whole movie revolves around the attempt to get this thing. And we never learn what it is. It's very clever. It's a really clever move because in a movie, uh, Alfred Hitchcock called it the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is something in the film that, that everyone will do anything to get. They will kill for it. They will die for it. They'll spend all of their energy to get it. And it can be anything. So that's why it's called, uh, Alfred Hitchcock called it a MacGuffin. It's like, you know, it, doesn't, it can be a person, it can be revenge, it can be money, it can be whatever you imagine. It's, it's just the MacGuffin. So this Mission Impossible, uh, they, I, and I love how they did it, they actually didn't even name the MacGuffin. They literally had a void at the centre of the movie that generated all of the action. And at one stage, one of the characters describes this, this MacGuffin, what they call the rabbit's foot. And he says that he calls it anti-God. And uh, he said, oh, you know, my lecture once said that if you ever find something like this, something that, you know, what a terrorist group wants this bad, it's anti-God. And of course, anti-God has the connotation of anti-matter, the nothingness itself, that which is an absolute lack. And so it's a little playful hint that this is anti-God, this is a nothingness at the very core of the movie that gets everything running. I was hoping when I was watching it originally that they would, um, actually that would be the twist. I thought what would be clever is if, if they had a misunderstanding at the core of the movie, that the bad guy misheard some sort of like maybe coded message about this object and so took it as something really important because he was like, oh, this, the government really want this, therefore I should get it. And then the government finds that this terrorist really wants this thing. And so they're like, oh my goodness, if it's that bad, we need to send the IMF team to go and get it. And so then you would literally have a movie where everything happens for nothing. But this then is what stands in for the nothing for me, Samson. And I really, really want it. So it is on the other side of my reality. It is the holy. It is the holy other thing that promises satisfaction, completeness. It is the sacred object. And it is, as I say, because I don't have it, it's over here, it's what I want. But then I, through saving up my hard-earned cash uh, or planning a heist, I get the object that I really want. So, uh, you know, you follow this along and you get to the other side and now I have the wholly other object. But now that I have it, it's mundane. I realize that it's not wholly other, it's just a thing, right? It's like, oh, it's, it's, it's the MacGuffin. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm freed from this dimension because now I'm just gonna have something else on the other side that's holy, right? That I'll then start to pursue. So maybe someone's house hunting and they really, really want a house and they think if only I get this house and I can settle down, I'll be happy. And then they get the house and it's just a house. It's maybe a nice house, whatever, but it's just a house. And so maybe then they go, oh, I want a bigger house. So they start to look and they see another house. Oh, funny, I can have that. They go around and if they get it, then they look around and go like, I want a house in a different place or I want to get two houses. I want to have a summer home. 
And so there's another thing on the other side of the twist. There's always this wholly other dimension that seems apart from our mundane existence that promises something really truly wonderful if we could only get it. And then if we don't get it, we remain depressed because we don't get it. But if we do get it, it's like, oh, it's just the thing. So in other videos, you've heard me talk about the object of desire and the object cause of desire. I won't look at that now, but go back, look at some of my previous videos on that subject. Um, now, what happens is you have religious perspectives that want to promise that you can get rid of this twist in reality by getting the thing, right? So there are religions, you call them religions of the pleasure principle, religions that will give you the thing that will make you happy, give you access to the holy, give you access to, like in philosophical terms, uh, you get to see the real, whatever, right? And there are religions of the reality principle, religions that say, no, you've got to give up this frenetic pursuit of desire because it's that which actually destroys us. It's this frenetic pursuit of this otherness that will satisfy us that actually causes problems. So you have religions of the pleasure principle or religions of the reality principle. Um, in the book that I'm currently writing, I'm looking at Christianity as a religion of the absurd, which is a religion of the Mobius strip. And the idea is that you can't get rid of, and you don't want to get rid of, the twist in reality. That's what makes things desirable. This is like love, right? You desire somebody. Now, they're someone you, you don't have access to, somebody you look at from afar, someone that you, you admire. Now, in, in, in lust, you simply reduce them to, or, well, yeah, let's talk about lust. You know, you're, they're this object you desire more than anything else. You really want them. It's, a, it's lust in the sense of it's bodily. You can feel it. It's not a rational thing. It's, it takes you up existentially. You want that person. But whenever you have them and when you sleep with them, whatever, it all dissipates, right? So when you lust after somebody, the, the sex uh, removes the kind of the veil and you go, oh, right, they're just a mundane person just like me. You get round to the other side, it doesn't work. So the obsessive is always doing this loop, looking for the next person, right? But love isn't the removal of the twist where you go, oh, the other person's just normal like me, right? They're just like, they're just like everybody else, right? In love, the other appears as holy and as different as sublime. They are it to us. Um, and the idea is not to traverse that twist but rather to enjoy it to uh, integrate it into the life of the relationship so to love someone is in a sense to be with them and yet have a separation from them to navigate this this twist in reality to somehow think that this other person is just like you is to get rid of the suffering of love by trying to protect yourself from love and on the other side you're a hopeless romantic in the sense of that you can only sustain love by having this fantasy that the other is this idealized perfection completely other than you. But in a healthy type of love, you have the twist which causes the desire um, without the idealization of the other. It's called sublimation. You sublimate the other. They, they become sublime in their ordinary nature, etc. So just to kind of finish up this very quick reflection um there is you know these two basic worldviews of uh 
you know, a crude materialism which reduces the world to a single uh, dimension. Um, and it has all sorts of problems. You have two-tier universe, which is a kind of superstitious uh, uh, separation of the world into two dimensions. Um, and then you have this kind of Mobius structure. And I think, you know, this, this is not what Paul Tillich meant necessarily when he said this, but it fits with what he meant when Paul Tillich said the rule of theology proper is to avoid the reduction um, of life into this crude materialism and, and also to protect us from a type of ridiculous superstition is to keep the holy dimension of reality open to integrate it into our lives to see that it is part of the, the structure of reality itself but that it is not another dimension it is a twist in reality that creates a type of other dimension that is real because of the the twist itself that's actually if you want to know if you hear me on my tour with Rob Bell uh, I do I do 20 minutes on the top but uh, the kind of the the way to understand what I'm saying in my kind of 20 minutes which is you know you don't get the stories and the jokes when I'm sitting on my couch right doing this but uh, when I'm on tour it's a different thing so what I'm doing in the the jokiness and the philosophy and all of that is a mix of trying to say that the holy is a wholly other dimension that operates within us it is not a reality it is a twist within us that we should neither ignore nor fall foul of and thinking that the other side is where the answer is and the truth is but we come to enjoy um, that this is how our subjectivity is actually structured all right thanks very much for listening in um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks next few weeks i will have i'm going to show you it actually um, this book will be on sale we're only doing a very limited run of 500 uh, if you're on my top, if you're my top patrons, you will get a signed copy. Don't worry, that I have got one set aside for you, um, and it is all about the subject of enduring love, uh, because love is so difficult to endure. So it's a it's a group, it's a pile of fairy tales that I've written, uh, and then uh, my friend Nader's has done all the illustrations, and um, it is it is really about how do we navigate the uh, the sufferings of love. And also the movie Making Love will be, um, will be coming out hopefully very soon. Uh, next couple of weeks, the people who supported it on Kickstarter will get a copy. Then uh, a couple of weeks later, I'm going to give it to um, many of my patrons, people kind of who are signed up for my courses and my books. And then uh, about a month after that, we will put it out there um, on a pay what you can or pay what you think is fair model. Uh, so there you go. And then eventually we'll probably put it on uh, iTunes for like one ninety nine. That's maybe next year. So there you go. That's what I'm up to. Thanks for listening. I hope uh, that made sense and I'll talk to you all again soon. Bye-bye.